Well, good morning. I long for the day for us to be gathered again in this room to be able to sing those praises uh, together. I will tell you, it is glorious being here. And uh, I'm so, always so thankful week after week for the worship team and the work that they put in uh, to lead us in worship. And last week I worshiped uh, with you from a living room, and, uh, uh, and it was wonderful. Uh, but it's a whole lot better being here, and I, I, I long for that. Most of you know that uh, Tana and I have quite the ethnically diverse family. Latino, Japanese, and Chinese. I'm actually quite proud of that, but it has required learning different cultures. For example, there was the time we had to learn about Chinese New Year and little red envelopes stuffed with cash. With our Salvadoran daughter-in-law, we are learning about Latino holiday traditions like Christmas, for example. With our Japanese daughter-in-law, we are learning a lot about Korean barbecue, go figure, how to make real sushi, and how to say goodbye. That's right. That last one has been quite interesting. You see, here in the U.S., when we say goodbye, we may walk our guests or family out to the driveway, hug them, and, or wave goodbye, and, and then we turn back to the house. Not so in Japanese culture. You walk them to the driveway, hug them, goodbye, and then wait. They get in the car and drive off as you stand there and wave. And you continue to wave from the street until you can no longer see them. It's like you're waving at no one, but you can see the car off in the distance, and so you wave. It's a good thing we don't live in Kansas. You see, there is value in that culture to saying goodbye. How you say goodbye with meaning is important to the ones leaving. It's kind of like when the seven Von Trapp children in The Sound of Music had to say good night at the end of a dinner party, so long, farewell, auf Wiedersehen, good night. They drug it out as long as they could. We hate to go and leave this pretty sight. Well, today there is a sense in which we are saying goodbye to First Peter. Now, not forever, of course. Like when we say goodbye to our son and daughter-in-law, we will see them again, but parting is such sweet sorrow. We actually started this book back in September, and it's time to say goodbye. But consider, as is often the case when we get to the closing of biblical letters, we speed through to the end. A quick wave, and we turn away, and we're off. But I would suggest that there is meaning in the farewell, and we are going to spend some time today waving. You see, biblical authors took the typical farewell, the sincerely yours of letters, and added deep theological truth. Uh, Paul, for example, almost always said, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. And the grace of Jesus Christ, of course, is most meaningful. Well, with that in mind, uh, let's read Peter's closing words, his long wave to us. It's 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 12, sadly to the end of the chapter. It says this, Through Silvanus, our faithful brother, for so I regard him, I have written to you briefly, have to chuckle at that, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. 
She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you greetings. And so does my son Mark. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace be to you all who are in Christ. This is indeed is a rich text. And we're going to be looking at the following three things. We're going to see the, the people of the farewell. We're going to see the commands of the farewell, of which there are two. And we're going to see, finally, uh, by way of conclusion, the peace of the farewell. Now let's look at each of those, starting with the, the people of the farewell. The ones standing in the street, if you will, waving at us. First is Silvanus. Paul mentions him by that name along with Timothy in three of his letters. First and second Thessalonians and second Corinthians, as I recall. Uh, it is the Latin name of his more familiar Greek name, Silas. He's first mentioned in Acts chapter um, 15 as a prophet, when he and others are given the task of delivering the decisions of the Jerusalem council to, to the churches. And later in that same chapter, he teamed up with Paul for Paul's second missionary journey, after Paul and Barnabas had split over their disagreement regarding Mark. Which is interesting, since Peter mentions Mark as well. We'll look at him in just a moment. Now, Silas was the one that Michael uh, talked about last week. He and Paul, uh, as they began that second missionary journey, were beaten and imprisoned in, in Philippi, uh, again, during that second journey. In other words, they were persecuted for their faith. And yet, here we see Silas still following Jesus in the midst of further persecution. In fact, Paul and Silas left Philippi for Thessalonica, where they were again opposed for their message. And you guessed it, a riot ensued. They left there, traveled to Berea, where they preached the gospel. But some Jews from Thessalonica followed them there. So Paul left Berea, but he, but he left Silas and Timothy uh, for a while to establish the church there in Berea. They, they later joined Paul in Corinth. And that's the last we hear of Silas, or Silvanus, until his mention in Paul's three letters to Corinth and, and Thessalonica. And of course, we see him mentioned here, where, Paul, or where Peter says, Silas, Silvanus is with him. Silas was a man greatly used by some rather significant apostles, those who were responsible for founding the Christian church. What's interesting to note is he spent time with both Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles, and Peter, the so-called apostle to the Jews. Because you see, the gospel is for everyone. Jesus died for people without regard to national origin or ethnicity, because we are all created in, in the image of God. Without getting into the discussion uh, about which lives matter, it is clear in Scripture that the gospel is for everyone because everyone needs the gospel. S Silas seemed to understand this. Peter calls Silvanus our faithful brother, for so I regard him. Why does he say that? Because the wording is such that Silvanus will deliver this letter that Peter has just written. Now, there's lots of discussion about whether Silvanus was Peter's amanuensis, that's a big word for secretary, who actually recorded the letter as Peter dictated it, or perhaps even shared his thoughts. 
But actually the wording is the same wording as in Acts 15 when Silas was given the responsibility of delivering the results of the Jerusalem council. So, so at the very least, he was given the responsibility of delivering the results uh, of the council. At the very least, he delivered the, the recipients of this letter throughout Asia Minor. And, and Peter here commends him to this task. In, in fact, it's very possible that he could have answered any questions that the churches may have had about this letter. That would have been fun. Why do I make a big deal about this? Because you likely knew Silas's name. And yet here he is, a, a faithful servant alongside both Paul and Peter, doing, dare I call it, menial work. The necessary work of delivering letters. Letters that have found their way into our Bibles. I want you to see Silas waving to you now in his faithful service. You see, it doesn't really matter what you do in the work of the kingdom or the work of the church. It matters that you do something. Whatever God calls you to do, we're supposed to do it with all of our might. It is important no matter how apparently, well, menial in the work of the gospel. And it will not be forgotten. You know Silas's name. God sees you. And he sees your faithfulness in carrying out the tasks that he calls you to. You know, I, I thought about it. I don't think we ever have Silas saying a word in Scripture. I mean, we find him singing, as we saw last week, praying. Here, sending greetings, delivering letters. But he never speaks, but you know his name. And so does God. He's not overlooked. I want to encourage you that whatever it is that you're doing, no matter how small or how big in the work of the kingdom, God sees you. Uh, let's go ahead and look then secondly at this Mark. Uh, again, like Silas, we see a man who served with Paul and, and now Peter uh, because he recognized, again, the gospel was for everyone, for Jews and for Greeks. Now, what do we know about this Mark? We first meet him in Acts chapter 12, uh, where the Jerusalem church was meeting in his mother's house. His mother's name was Mary, by the way. Uh, seems like a lot of people, a lot of women were named Mary, but they, they were meeting in her house. In fact, that's likely where Mark first met Peter. <laughs> the story goes like this. Peter had been imprisoned for his faith, a familiar scenario. And the day before his apparently scheduled execution, an angel appeared to Peter, loosed his chains, opened the prison doors for Peter to walk right out. He went to the house of, of Mary, Mark's mother, because, well, that's where the church gathered to pray for Peter. So Peter knocks on the door, and when a servant girl, her name was Rhoda, when, when she, she went to answer the door, she heard Peter's voice. She was so excited, she forgot to open the door. And she went to tell the church that Peter was there. Interesting, they didn't believe her. Here they were praying for Peter, and when God answered their, their prayers, they didn't believe it. It's got me to thinking about us. Don't we do that sometimes? We ask God for something, he answers, and then we just don't believe it. Oh, and by the way, for us it usually looks like this. We only think God answers, that's the way we use the word, we only think God answers our prayers as he, if he gives us what we want. You ever thought about that? God, heal me. God, give me the new job. 
God, deliver me. God, give me the girl. And if he doesn't, we wonder, well, where is God? Doesn't he hear? Why doesn't he answer me? And the truth is, he did. He just said no. But we don't like that answer. You see, for many of us, when we say God answers prayers, we mean God answers prayers when he agrees with me, when I am able to marshal God to to my purposes, when he gives me what I want, what I ask for. And if he doesn't, then we wonder, well, God, where are you? Why is heaven silent? It's not silent. You see, we say and even believe that God is sovereign and good as as long as he uses his sovereign goodness for what I want him to do, to give me what I want. But what if he doesn't? Is he still sovereign and good? And I know immediately uh, some of you think, well, yes, he's good because, well, he knows everything, and he knows if he gave me the the new job or the the girl, it it wouldn't be good for me because I might, what, fill in the blank. I I might get too proud, or, or, or I might make too much money and forget him. I might get distracted. All of that is true. Maybe. But for your consideration... Is it possible that God says no because he knows the no in itself is best for you? That in your spiritual discipline, not getting everything you ask for is good for you. Don't we treat our children the same way? After all, we've been seeing in this book that God wills our suffering to mature us to refine us in uh, in the fire, to cause us to long for the return of Christ, to bring him glory. So is it possible that the no, is it because the yes would be bad for us, but the no is better for you and for your maturing to be like Jesus? All that was just a bit of an aside. So, Rhoda, she's back at the door. She's gone in. She keeps insisting. Peter's at the door. They open the door, and sure enough, there's Peter. Mark, also known as John Mark, was likely there. I'm sure that it made quite the impression on this young man. Because later, you see, he traveled again with Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary journey. Of course, we know he deserted and returned to Jerusalem halfway through the journey. For some reason, he quit. Some suggested he got homesick. He missed mom. Whatever, we don't know. We we just do know that it caused this division between Paul and Barnabas in the next journey, the second journey. Paul took, well, Silas. And Barnabas took his little cousin, John Mark. And you also likely know that later, when Paul was facing certain death, as he wrote, 2 Timothy, his final letter, he he asked for three things. He asked for a coat. You see, it was cold there in that Mamertine prison in Rome. And he asked for the parchments. That that is, he asked for the word of God. And, And third, he asked for, you guessed it, John Mark. He was useful to Paul. Of all people, in his waning days, Paul asked for this mark. And we find him here, that Mark is with Peter. You may know, for example, that the Gospel of Mark was written by this particular Mark at 
Peter's instruction. He was, well, he was Peter's secretary, I guess. You see, Mark is actually Peter's gospel written by Mark. Why, why do I say all of that? Why do I give that little biography? How does this encourage us? Because no, no matter how much or in what way you have failed the Lord, you can always repent and return. You can be useful to him in ministry. Can I remind you that God is in the remodeling business? He takes broken people and he renews them. So, so in whatever way you have failed the Lord in a big way, in a little way, and maybe even recently, maybe even this week, I just want to remind you that God will restore you if you but return. He did for John Mark. Well, the third person or persons that we meet are, are found in, in, in verse 13. When Peter writes, she who is in Babylon sends you greetings. Now, this is confusing for, for two reasons. First, who is this she? Now, some in the early church suggested that this was Peter's wife. You say, what, Peter? The, the so-called first pope was married? Sure was. We remember that Jesus healed Peter's mother-in-law, and later Paul says Peter took along his wife. And so from that, they suggest that his wife's there with him, and so she greets you. The only challenge is we never meet her in the gospel narratives. She's totally silent, even absent. So for this to refer to Peter's wife would seem a bit strange indeed. And so most agree today that Peter is talking about the church from whence he writes. The, the church is often referred to as she, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. After all, she is the bride of Christ. So Peter says, Mark and Silas greet you as does the rest of the church who is here. But, but where is here? That is, where is this Babylon? I'm not going to go into all of the discussion and rationale, but most agree this is a reference to Rome. For example, we see Rome referred to as Babylon many times in the book of Revelation. So why? Why? Why would Peter call Rome Babylon? Because Babylon became the symbol of the city filled with idolatries that was opposed to the people of God. You'll remember in the, in the second captivity under Nebuchadnezzar, that's where they were, the Jews were taken. And it became known as this horrible city that oppressed God's people. So Rome is appropriately then called Babylon. The, the Neronian persecutions were likely right around the corner. And, and by the way, this is a way that Peter could identify with the recipients of this letter. Yes, he says, I know that you are facing opposition, but, but the church here in Rome, <laughs> the, the, the seat of everything abominable that opposes the church, we're facing persecution as well. We stand in solidarity with you. Don't you know that your brothers and sisters around the world are suffering just like you? He had just written them. Notice how he refers to this church. They are chosen together with you. This reminds us of the first verse of the letter. It forms what's called an inclusio. It, it bookends to the book. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens, scattered everywhere. Remember, we don't ultimately belong here. Who are chosen? The election of God of the church of Jesus Christ throughout time and space, again, bookend this letter. 
Yes, you were chosen, he said, according, uh, or by the foreknowledge of God, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit. That's chapter 1, verse 2. To obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with, his, uh, with the blood of his gospel. And so uh, Peter here says the church here in Rome, and by the way, I would add here in Boone, and everywhere that the gospel is preached, uh, we have been chosen by God for his purposes and for his Glory. I know that lots of people don't like the word chosen or election, but, well, it is in the Bible. All that then brings us very quickly to our second point, Peter's final exhortations or, or Peter's final commands. He's, and I suggested that there are two. First, in verse 12, he says he has written briefly. Again, I kind of love that. It's only taken us since September to go through this brief book. I have written to you exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Exhorting refers to those commands, and there are a lot of them in this book. Uh, the commands it is given regarding how to live as a follower of Jesus Christ. You see, if we confess to, uh, profess to be followers of Jesus, it ought to change the way that we live. And this book tells us a lot about that. Testifying refers to the reliability of what he has said. What is this true grace of God? It's this letter. I don't have time to review the whole letter, but the principal points are simply these. The gospel. The gospel is found in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. God then, since his son died for us. He then caused us, he caused us to be born again to a living hope through his resurrection by this grace through faith in the finished work of Christ. You have been born again, not by perishable seed, you'll remember, but imperishable by the living and enduring word of God, which means your salvation will endure because it is based on an, in, an imperishable inheritance, an imperishable word that leads to that inheritance that awaits you. In the meantime, right now, God is building us into a spiritual building, the church, in which he will live by his spirit. But know this, Peter says, if you follow Christ, you will suffer just like Jesus did. So prepare your minds for action. Remember that? Fix your hope completely on the grace to be fully yours when Jesus returns. You see, God is going to use your suffering to mature you, to refine you, um, so that the proof of your faith, uh, being more precious than gold, uh, will be proven at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That is the return of Christ and will result in praise and honor and glory. So, live good lives. Again, the truth of the gospel promotes us to live good lives in every arena. Remember, at home, in your workplaces, slaves, masters, under governing authorities, we've sought to do that. So that even though they ridicule you, oppose you, persecute you, or kill you, live such good lives that they may glorify God by believing the same gospel that we believe when he visits them with salvation. Be ready, you see, to give an answer to everyone who asks you the reason for the hope that you have. And in the midst of all of this, sprinkled throughout this book, very important for our day today, he says, keep loving one another. In fact, he says, love one another fervently, deeply from the heart. 
Show hospitality to one another. Serve one another with the spiritual gifts that you've received. And, and now he sums it all up by saying, this is the grace of God. Here's the command. Stand firm in it. Don't forget everything that I've just written you. I know it's hard. D don't give up. Don't turn away. Don't quit. Stand firm in this grace of God. Which leads to the last command, the last command of the book. And I will confess to you, it is the very reason that I waited to preach this message on what I trust will be the last Sunday that we will meet together remotely by live stream. The, 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 the last command, verse 14, greet one another with a kiss of love. I have told you this before, but there are a number of one another's in Scripture. Love one another, we see that here. Serve one another. Oh, we see that here. Show hospitality to one another. First Peter, bear with one another, forgive one another, encourage one another, admonish one another, bear, uh, 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 bear uh, uh, with one another, build up one another. On and on the list goes. The thing that I would point out about these one another's, so important for our day, is that they require us being together in community. Meaning that live stream will not ultimately do it. I told you 14 weeks ago, do not get used to this. It is temporary. Yes, we're going to continue the live stream for, for times when you're unable to be here. We're reaching people that we, we don't normally meet. We're going to continue the live stream. But I told you, don't get used to it. It's temporary. Listen, Peter and, and Paul told us to obey governing authorities. And we've done that. And we've done so with honor and respect. Now those governing authorities have given us, somewhat reluctantly, permission to meet again. And I know that we have people on both ends of the spectrum. Those on the one side who say, why aren't we meeting? Why didn't we continue to meet from the very first time we were told we couldn't? Why didn't we start meeting when the judge said that we could? And then still others are saying, well, let's not rush it. Maybe we shouldn't meet till this is all over, you know, maybe in 2027 or something. I want you to know, I understand both sentiments. But what I am concerned about is when I hear, hey, this live stream is working just fine. Think I'll just stay in my PJs with my cereal and my dog and enjoy church this way from now on. Or I hear, the church will never be the same. I understand that there may be some ways that we have to do things differently in the interest of caring physically for one another. In fact, later this week, you'll get an email from the church, and I'll share a video on how we plan to meet together again. But here's the, here's the point. I want you to hear loud and clear. We will meet together. Yes, we'll encourage the most vulnerable among us to wait for a few weeks or so for your safety, but we will meet together. In order for the church to be the church, it requires community. That's why, while not specifically a, a, a one another, the implication is there that the author of Hebrews said to us, do not give up meeting together even by live stream, as some are in the habit of doing, but encourage one another. Now there's a one another. And all the more as you see the day approaching, the day of Christ's return. Now, brothers and sisters, we desperately need one another. I have missed you terribly. And others have thankfully expressed the same attitude. We were meant to live in community. And as it becomes safer for us to do so, we 
will. To, among other things, that is, among other one another's, to greet one another with a kiss of love. Now, Paul said this many times, but his was typically greet one another with a holy kiss. Peter's is a kiss of love. The idea is this. Get this. Show family affection. We are meant to show each other familial affection. We are supposed to love each other so much that we want to physically express it. Yes, it is supposed to be holy. In fact, in the early days of the church, men kissed men on the cheek and women kissed women to maintain holy affection. Many in Middle Eastern culture still maintain this practice, greeting each other with a holy kiss of family affection. By the way, Paul and Peter were writing uh, 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 when Paul and Peter were writing, it was typical to express this ty- t- kind of family affection among family, perhaps close friends. You didn't do it with mere acquaintances or casual friends. But here we're commanded to do so. Do you see the point? We are a family and we should act like it. Brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, of course, through the years, that affection has perhaps appropriately changed to holy hugs or holy handshakes, and I suppose now we'll exchange holy elbows. I don't know, but the point is, in, in community, for which we were saved in part to be a community, we are to show family affection toward one another. How can we do that? If I can speak very frankly, through live stream or Zoom, we need each other. Francis Chan, a gentleman that I respect, recently posted, something that God has designed to be a function as a family has been reduced to an optional weekly meeting. And this has become normal, expected. How in the world did we get here? Our elders have tried to balance our decision to return. Again, to kind of lop off those extremes of those who think we should have kept on meeting and those who think we should never again meet. We have decided to try and meet safely because, frankly, without each other, we are missing God's plan for this, his church. All that then brings us to our last point in conclusion. Um, A final wave, if you will. Um, I will not say in conclusion and go for 20 minutes, although Peter does. Peace be to all of you, or to all who are in Christ. That is, to those of you who are Christians. Isn't it interesting, given the current events of our day, that we hear those words? From pandemic to social unrest, Peter throws in persecution because of our faith. And he says this to us. Peace. The word speaks of a sense of well-being. Of being right with God and with God's people. And he says to us, peace. Shalom. We remember the words of Jesus in the farewell discourse when he, in a sense, waved goodbye. Peace I leave with you. My my peace I give to you, not as the world gives. You only have to look at the news to see they know nothing about peace. The only sense of peace they have is if we can get the riots to stop. 
We can get those who hate each other to lay down their guns. That's their idea of peace. This is not Jesus' idea of peace. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Nor let it be fearful. I'm going away, but I'm coming back. Peace. And so Peter says to a church suffering persecution, to a church likely facing increasing hostility today, to a church in the midst of economic, racial, and health challenges, I say to you, peace.